Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds for February. Uh, this morning, our topic is chronic kidney disease, presented by Dr. Dean Rinelli. Uh, Dr. Rinelli um, went to medical school at University of Cincinnati and did his residency and fellowship at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis. And he's been here in the Rogue Valley practicing for 33 years. And um, we're fortunate to have him speak for us today. Dr. Rinelli. Thank you. Pleasure to be here this morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, my topic today is uh, chronic kidney disease, something I spend most of my current practice life uh, working on. And most of the time when uh, people ask me about chronic kidney disease, you know, the first question, and it's an appropriate question, is when should patients be referred to a nephrologist? And, and I'm going to touch on that a little bit. Uh, but to my mind, that's not the most important issue. Um, what I'm most concerned about is the huge numbers of patients that have chronic kidney disease, frequently, which is very mild. Uh, and the problem is just too big for nephrology alone. Uh, we need to have involvement of the primary care world to, to make this an effective treatment. So really what I'm proposing is that we have a better uh, partnership between um, the primary care world and the specialist world with uh, evaluation and treatment of uh, chronic kidney disease. So in this talk, uh, I'm going to outline sort of a basic framework, how I deal with chronic kidney disease, uh, so that you as hope, I'm speaking mostly to primary care physicians and uh, primary care providers, have a framework on how to approach these patients so they go in with confidence and uh, can, do a, can do a good job. Um, I see a lot of patients referred to my office with chronic kidney disease and also for our program, I, uh, I review all the referrals to our office for chronic kidney disease. So I think I've got a pretty good idea of what goes on in the primary care world. And I know it's a busy, stressful world with so much to deal with, uh, but there's a couple things that come up sort of repeatedly that I would like to try to change. Um, the first is sort of what I call the knee-jerk referral, where you know the creatinine's on the rise. If the creatinine's been 1.2, the GFR has been 60, and all of a sudden it's not. It's, it's 50, it's 40, and there's been a change. And many times that's an appropriate referral to a nephrologist, but sometimes it's not. Uh, and, I, and I'm gonna go through the situations where I, I don't think that is. Um, and so often what I see in the chart is someone's creatinine clearance or GFR has dropped and almost always it says drink more water and stop NSAIDs, which are important recommendations, uh, but there's so much more to it and there's so much more to the evaluation. And what we do in nephrology, it's not, not magic, it's pretty basic, straightforward uh, medicine, internal medicine, um, and it's something that really anybody can learn to do if they have an interest. Um, the other issue I want to change is where patients learn about chronic kidney disease on their after-visit summary. This happens a lot. I'd say so many of the patients referred to me. I said, what do you know about chronic kidney disease? And it's usually nothing. And how long have you had chronic kidney disease? Don't know. Um, and I think what, what my biggest concern is it undermines their confidence in the primary care world. Uh, when they get, they usually get a phone call from the MA in the office where they go for, for primary care and they're told uh, to go see a nephrologist. They don't even know what a nephrologist is. Um, so, I, so I really would encourage PCPs to try to sit down and explain a little bit more to patients about what chronic kidney disease is. And I've got uh, some ideas on how to do that. Scope of the problem. This is a slide here. I didn't advance. Okay. Okay. Over the speaker, so we'll get out of okay, just getting the slide going. Uh, it's estimated that there are 38 million Americans that have chronic kidney disease. And you can see 
hopefully in this slide, the age distribution, there's a steady increase in both incidence and prevalence. Um, Got the slide on. Okay. On the internet. Okay. Um, you know, there's a steady increase in both incidence and prevalence of chronic kidney disease as uh, our population ages. So that by age 70, uh, nearly 40, 42% of patients have chronic kidney disease. And I've certainly seen this in my practice over the years with the aging baby boomer population. And I think this is influenced by just an epidemic of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and really unhealthy lifestyles. People that don't exercise, don't eat properly, keep smoking cigarettes. And it's interesting, you know, most patients are completely unaware that they have chronic kidney disease. It shows up on their labs, but they have very few symptoms and, and they don't even know it. And uh, so that's part of our task is, as physicians is to identify those patients that have you know, mild chronic kidney disease. And my bigger concern is that there's currently estimated 5,000 United States nephrologists. So if you take 38 million divided by 5,000, uh, I think the number I got was 8,000 patients per nephrologist. That's just insurmountable. We, we, we can't do that. And I don't see a lot of hope on the way as um, I'm being told that there's currently about a 40% vacancy in nephrology fellowships. Uh, and my daughter, who was talking to Eric a minute ago, is about to graduate from med school. There's fewer and fewer patients going into internal medicine and primary care. Um, so it's, it's a real part of concern. We've got to learn to spread this big problem over a larger group of uh, providers. So um, next, just going to talk about the role of the primary care provider. And the number one thing is to identify chronic kidney disease, especially to identify it early. Um, and I'll talk a little bit how to do that. And then to really differentiate uh, chronic kidney disease from either acute kidney injury or subacute kidney injury. Subacute is a little a form of acute kidney injury that's a little more delayed happening over a period of weeks or maybe months as opposed to a more rapid acute kidney injury. And the key to this is really looking at old labs. Uh, sometimes symptoms and people with any kind of acute kidney injury are going to tend to have more symptoms, uh, whereas people with chronic kidney disease are frequently completely asymptomatic. But the, the key is finding old labs. So I really encourage the uh, the PCP world to be bulldogs and find those old labs. Uh, you know, our new now our, our computer uh, generated uh, medical record is real helpful in finding old labs. Uh, and there's a lot of different uh, schemes on there to help you find uh, past labs. Sometimes you got to talk to the patient and say, when did you last have a lab? Because um, if you see a patient whose creatinine is 1.5 now, if you can go back a year or two and it was 1.1, 1.3, which is a little bit elevated, uh, I think that's a good sign that you're dealing with uh, chronic kidney disease. Once you've established that a patient has CKD, uh, I think it's important just to explain to patients what that is. And I'm going to go through about a two-minute spiel that I give every patient I see on what chronic kidney disease is. The next thing is we want to have you assess for proteinuria. Proteinuria is uh, a significant predictor of which patients are high risk because of those 38 million patients with chronic kidney disease, probably only 10 or 20 percent are at particularly high risk to progress towards end-stage renal disease. Um, and the amount of proteinuria is a very good guide to which of those patients have a serious CKD. There's other things too. I mean, I think if you have patients whose creatinine is ra rising relatively rapidly or GFR falling relatively rapidly, or people that have lots of comorbid conditions, especially the diabetic who has uh, lots of target organ damage, those are patients you can pretty much predict are, are at high risk. And those patients uh, definitely merit early referral to nephrology. And also the PCP needs to be aware of who are the high risk groups to screen? I mean, a lot of patients I think are pretty obvious, uh, 65 and older, hypertensive, diabetic, hyperlipidemic, cigarette smokers. Uh, those, it's kind of a no brainer that those patients need labs to screen them for chronic kidney disease. There's a couple of populations that aren't as immediately obvious. Um, and, and one is uh, relatively young women who've had complicated pregnancies. 
by complicated pregnancy, those might be somebody who's had preeclampsia uh, or early uh, delivery or some or hypertension, uh, maybe later in onset in their uh, pregnancy. And pregnancy is certainly a real uh, stress on the kidneys. So if people have a poor response during pregnancy, uh, that is a predictor for women who later on, perhaps just past their childbearing ages in their 30, 30 or to 40, uh, could be a particularly high risk of chronic kidney disease. And then of course, people have a family risk of chronic kidney disease. You know, as, as family history, if uh, they mentioned their father had uh, was on dialysis or another patient had chronic kidney disease in their family, uh, that should be a, a tip off. Um, I really encourage people to make a tentative diagnosis as to the cause of chronic kidney disease. Most of the time, this is a no-brainer. Uh, the cause of their kidney dysfunction is uh, really not difficult to figure out. Um, now, a lot of patients uh, share a very typical pattern. I'm going to go through those patterns to, to make, and then just share that uh, that diagnosis with the patients so they have some ideas for the cause of their reduced kidney function, because otherwise it's just a, a number on a piece of paper. Um, and also to, to talk to patients that have chronic kidney disease that with proper therapy, this can be greatly delayed. Uh, CKD is a treatable condition these days, and many patients can have end-stage renal disease either prevented completely or, or delayed. Uh, next, I really encourage PCPs to continue things that I'm sure they're already doing. Uh, education on healthy lifestyle, stopping smoking, losing weight, getting exercise. Uh, these are things that, you know, it's like turning a big ship around. Many people don't want to do this. But I've been surprised over my uh, career. You know, the more people you talk to, and the more times they hear it, you know, people start to change their habits. It really does make a difference to what you say. Um, next, I'm just going over some of the goals. Our, our, our goal blood pressure on all patients with chronic kidney disease, this is usually the mainstay of therapy in preventing chronic kidney disease, is a blood pressure less than 130 over 80. And we really encourage home monitoring of uh, blood pressure. Uh, I think that's a much more accurate way to assess uh, the burden of their blood pressure as opposed to office readings, which are so often scattered, white coat hypertension, uh, not, not really accurate. And of course, the cornerstone of therapy for treating hypertension is the so-called RAS drugs. These are the renal angiotensin drugs that I think uh, most uh, physicians these days are, are pretty familiar with. Uh, one of the things I'm going to show in a bit is that uh, with these RAS drugs, we really want to push the dose to the maximum tolerated dose. Um, and of course, the things that limit uh, the toleration of these uh, medications are things like hyperkalemia, a significant change in kidney function, and um, excessive uh, blood pressure control since so the patients are symptomatic with hypotension. Obviously, we don't want that. If patients are not achieving that goal blood pressure, we typically add a vasodilating calcium channel blocker such as nifedipine or amlodipine, and then a beta blocker if particular situations, tachycardic, uh, if there's coronary disease or angina. And lastly, I always, always remember patients need to be have their volume controlled. And this is usually my ace in the hole. When patients come to me with chronic kidney disease and inadequately controlled blood pressure, I always, the thing that I usually do and it's usually effective and makes other medications work is to get their, their volume controlled. And that starts off with a low sodium diet, which again is, you know, patients don't want to hear this. They, they love salt. I love salt. Um, but it's... It, it's you know, kind of just spending a few minutes talking to them about not adding salt to food when they eat, adding salt when they cook, avoiding processed and canned foods, avoiding things that taste salty. Um, that's really the, the mainstay of therapy. Ideally, we like to get people down to about 2,000 milligrams of sodium intake per day. That's pretty tough sodium restriction. And then, of course, we add diuretics. Uh, so you just start with thiazide diuretics. Uh, one pearl is a chlorothaladone is definitely a more potent diuretic than hydrochlorothiazide. And once patients have more advanced chronic kidney disease, we typically use the loop diuretics uh, to be more effective. 
And remember, with all these therapies, both the rash drugs and the diuretics, this is a point I'll make uh, repeatedly during this talk, is that the creatinine is going to go up. When you start somebody on uh, an ACE inhibitor or a diuretic, you're going to see the creatinine go up. And as long as it doesn't go up too much, and I'll define what that is, is, is too much, you know, that's that's the price of getting their blood pressure controlled. So in the long run, better blood pressure control is really what we're after. Um, other issues, uh, good diabetic control, A1C is under 7.0, uh, lipid management. Most patients with chronic kidney disease don't die of chronic kidney disease. They die of heart disease. Uh, and so uh, most of these patients need to be on statins as part of their, uh, uh, their regimen for ESR, for CKD management. Uh, definitely either completely stop or minimize uh, NSAIDs if possible. There are some people that are completely wedded to their NSAIDs and it's difficult to get them off these drugs. Um, I really, really encourage them to use them on a PRM basis and not on a routine basis. You know, take them when their their knee is hurting, their back is hurting bad. Acetaminophen is a much safer medication to use for uh, aches and pains and arthritis. Um, Obviously, when kidney function gets worse, NSAIDs have to be stopped uh, completely, but a lot of patients can minimize their NSAIDs and, and use them relatively safely with occasional uh, lab follow-up. The next thing I really recommend is what I call the internal medicine uh, mode of following patients. Um, I think most, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I, <laughs> I don't, I, after being here for 33 years, I feel like I've got a little room to editorialize. Um, but I, as I see the primary, the, the family practice models, you know, come back and see me when you have a problem. Come back and see me when you're not feeling good. Uh, and I don't think that works for following people with chronic diseases, whether that's CKD, diabetes, congestive heart failure. These patients need to be seen on a routine basis uh, for follow-up of their blood pressure and labs um, and, uh, and to keep reinforcing what the right thing to do is. Um, so a lot of times patients come to see me and I'll tease them. I'll say, what are you doing here? And they must always say, well, you told me to come back. Um, so uh, I really emphasize that, but I've, this internal medicine routine uh, follow-up model and getting labs ahead of time. Uh, it, it's, it takes some extra work to order those labs, but to have the labs with you and the patient in the room at the same time uh, makes avoids for a lot of confusion. So often when labs are obtained following the appointment, there's a review by the physician and a call by the MA or a letter is sent. And I don't think communication about those particular labs in this setting of chronic kidney disease and chronic illnesses is effective. Couple more things for the PCP is to be aware of some of the newer therapies that I'm going to talk about: the um, the glyphosins, the SGLT2 blockers, uh, the GLP drugs. These are the Ozempic and Trulicities of the world, and then the mineralocorticoid blockers that are new. Um, just to be aware that these therapies are coming and are a really exciting change in treating chronic kidney disease, and to be aware of some of the typical side effects of these medications that I'll review. Um, and again, just to be, I'm going to point out again, uh, as long as the rising creatinine or drop in the GFR is less than 30%, we want you to continue that therapy because generally kidney function uh, will stabilize after that change. Another editorialization on my part is I, I realize that by asking primary care providers to be more involved, uh, it just adds to their burden. And being a primary care doctor or physician is difficult. Uh, I've spent half my career being a PCP for patients with end-stage renal disease. I don't do that anymore, but I really appreciate that this is what I call the hardest job in medicine, being a PCP. Uh, you know, the range of responsibilities that PCP is responsible for is just daunting from the worried well to, you know, monitoring um, health maintenance issues, um, anxiety, depression, psychiatry issues, office orthopedics. I mean, it's really incredible the range of issues that uh, PCPs are expected to weigh in on. And I know there's increasing regulatory and documentation issues that are being inflicted on uh, PCPs also. So it's, it's a big job. And now I'm asking you 
to be more involved with chronically ill patients with uh, lots of increasing uh, therapy and diagnostic uh, decisions. And I don't have a good answer on how to do this. All I know is that I think uh, better teamwork between specialists and PCPs is important, better communication. I personally uh, have some belief in this ACO model that I don't think is really going anywhere at the moment where we're specialists and primary providers are part of the same organization so that we can have better communication, more advice can be given without necessarily having the patient come to see the specialist all the time. Uh, I think fewer doctors is better medicine. But too many doctors, it's like too many cooks spoil the soup. You got too many physicians telling people what to do, too many drugs to be taken, it just gets really confusing. So I see a huge benefit uh, for patients with CKD and having their primary care provider involved, uh, being the quarterback, knowing what meds they're taking, keeping track of the meds, and uh, being a resource for, for patients. So how do we educate patients about chronic kidney disease? This is sort of my typical thing. I usually sit down and I tell people uh, that the main job of the kidneys is waste elimination. And it's uh, very similar to your car. Your car burns gasoline and the exhaust system has to get rid of waste products. The kidneys uh, get rid of the waste products that result in metabolism of the food we eat. And if our kidney function is less than it should be, the amount of waste products start to go up in the blood. Um, and that's the creatinine, of course, that, that we're following. Um, and we can estimate from the lab tests how significantly, how significant the kidney, the decrease in kidney function is. So labs are really critical to the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease. Without labs, we would have no clue most patients have chronic kidney disease. It's really based on labs as there's very few symptoms. Patients usually say to me, but my urine output's fine. I make lots of urine. Well, that's not the point because people with CKD have a normal urine output. It's people with acute kidney injury that have a decreased urinary output. So there's very few symptoms. I mean, patients can monitor their blood pressure, they can watch for edema, uh, but typically people feel fine. I saw a guy yesterday, his GFR was 15, he felt 100%. <laughs> um, I like to show patients their labs so that it makes it a little bit more real. It's nice to, on the electronic medical records, you, there's usually a button you can push that brings up all their GFRs or creatinines over the last 10 years. And for them to be able to see that serial change in kidney function, I think is very helpful. And also, it's good to talk about it because a lot of times as you go through that series of uh, renal function assessments, there's a lot of ups and downs. Uh, there's a lot of uh, variability from one point to the next, and that has to do with a lot of different factors, but it's really the overall trend we're looking at. So try to, sometimes it's hard to explain little blips up and down in the kidney function, but try to really stress uh, overall trends. And also I tell patients that once you have CKD, there's no getting back the kidney function you've lost. All of our efforts are directed at pr uh, preventing or protecting the kidney function that's remaining uh, so that you can continue without dialysis. Dialysis is uh, at the end stage of, of this whole process, and we're really trying to avoid dialysis because life on dialysis is not so great for a lot of people, and uh, uh, life expectancy definitely goes down once you reach end-stage renal disease. And lastly, I'd like to point out the stage they're at. Is, uh, you can see on this slide uh, the breakdown in stages of chronic kidney disease, and this whole topic is another area that frightens patients. Uh, they see CKD4 and they analogize that to a cancer with stage four carcinoma, and they're not really quite the same thing. And obviously, CKD4 is worse than CKD3, uh, but these are more of a description of where you're at. It's not a predictor of where you're going. I have many patients that I follow who maintain stage 3B, 4 for many years with uh, stable therapy. Um, so it's not a death sentence to have stage four chronic kidneys. People need to know that if they do keep doing the right things, they can stay off dialysis for some time. So how do we diagnose chronic kidney disease? And I really emphasize 
pattern management because so many of the patients I see fall into very, very typical patterns. And usually there's a very slow, gradual deterioration uh, in kidney function. Um, and by slow, I mean over a period of months to years, you see change in their kidney function with the rise in creatinine and fall in GFR. If you see something more rapid, something else is going on. It's a, I'll, I'll get into some of the things that, that can be going on when there's a more rapid change. And we want to identify CKD early, of course. And the, one of the key things to recognize here is that what the normal creatinine is lower than you think it is. Uh, and that's particularly true for um, people that don't have a lot of muscle mass. And I'll touch on this a bit more in the future. Creatinine comes from muscle. So an NFL football player is going to have a higher creatinine as a normal baseline uh, than an 80-year-old lady who lives in a nursing home. So remember that in small, thin people who don't have much muscle mass, a normal creatinine might be 0 0.4. And an NFL football player and a normal creatinine might be 1.3, 1.4. So you always have to reference what's normal um, to the patient's situation. Once you start to identify that early rise in creatinine, those are the people you want, especially early, if they're young, young, you want to, you know, lifestyle changes, get them to stop smoking, make sure their blood pressure is adequately controlled. I'm going to go through a few different scenarios that we see over and over again. First, I, I describe as the classic diabetic nephropathy, and this was originally described in type 1 diabetics, which we don't see very many type 1 diabetics. These are, of course, diabetics that had early onset of diabetes with uh, insulin deficiency. And all these patients can, of course, tell you exactly when they became diabetic. They can remember the date that they became um, acidotic and got admitted to the hospital. And typically 15 to 20 years after the onset of uh, type 1 diabetes, they start to show signs of renal manifestations. This is not all type 1 diabetics, but it's probably 40% of type 1 diabetics. Uh, typically, these patients have widespread target organ damage. And the initial phase is what we call hyperfiltration. Uh, hyperfiltration injury happens in, in most patterns of chronic kidney disease, but especially in type 1 diabetics. And so at the very earliest stage of diabetic nephropathy, the creatinines are lower than baseline because each individual nephron is working harder. And then you start to see a little bit of proteinuria. You see microscopic uh, albuminuria first uh, from between, you'll see microalbumin creatinine ratios between 100 and 300. And then you just develop more severe proteinuria uh, where you might get a 24-hour urine uh, protein you know, up to 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 milligrams of proteinuria. By the time patients reach that severity of proteinuria, uh, they are on a rapid decline towards end-stage renal disease. When I first started uh, training in chronic kidney disease 30-some years ago, um, we would get out a piece of graph paper with these type 1 diabetics and chart out their creatinines and draw a line to where the GFR was zero. And you could pretty reliably predict, you know, Mrs. Jones, you're going to be on dialysis in three and a half years. Uh, fortunately, with uh, mostly the onset of ACE inhibitor therapy, uh, that curve was greatly delayed. And now even type 1 diabetics, um, of which blood pressure control is probably the mainstay of therapy, uh, can greatly change their future. Mostly what we see is type 2 diabetics. We have lots of these patients. These are overweight patients with family history of diabetes and insulin resistance who also have a 15 to 20 year history of diabetes before they start getting kidney problems, but it's much more compressed because most patients don't realize that they are diabetic until later on in the course of their diabetes. Uh, again, it's an asymptomatic uh, silent killer. Uh, these patients also tend to have target organ damage, although in my experience, we see a lot more neuropathy in these type 2 diabetics than retinopathy, and they go through a predictable course of gradually increasing proteinuria. Uh, these patients uh, also may progress towards end-stage renal disease, but in a much less predictable fashion uh, than uh, the classic uh, type 1 diabetics. Uh, nephrosclerosis is kind of a grab bag term of um, patients who have renal scarring. 
Um, and this is usually older patients that have some combination of aging, high blood pressure, typically uncomplicated diabetes. They tend to have a lot of vascular disease. They may have been smokers, high cholesterol. And frequently they've had episodes of acute kidney injury somewhere during their lifetime associated with hypotension or sepsis or who knows what. And the hallmark of these patients with nephrosclerosis is they don't have much proteinuria. Um, and of course, none of these patients I've talked about so far have any hematuria. If you start seeing hematuria, I always think chronic glomerular arthritis. Uh, but these patients typically have some proteinuria in the diabetics and these nephrosclerotic patients, they have very little proteinuria. Um, if they have more than a gram of proteinuria in a 24-hour uh, collection, uh, that might suggest that there's some other lesions going on in the kidneys. Um, these patients have very, uh, they tend to be stable, very slow progression of the chronic kidney disease. And in the group of patients that I would suggest you not necessarily refer to nephrology, this is the group of people that we see a lot of. Uh, we see 85-year-olds referred to as the creatinine 1.7. And in some situations, I can imagine that's appropriate. But again, what we do is nothing very complicated. It's controlling their blood pressure, controlling their lipids, getting them to make sure they're stopping smoking, avoiding NSAIDs. Uh, it's kind of routine management uh, that I think doesn't necessarily require nephrologists. So the diagnosis of uh, the pattern of chronic kidney disease is basically a history and physical examination, serial labs, urine studies looking for proteinuria. Almost always get an ultrasound of their kidneys, especially in men. Um, but if people fall into this pattern, we don't do kidney biopsies and we don't really do much other workup. This is it. Um, it's people that fall outside the pattern whose kidney functions deteriorate more rapidly, people that have hematuria, people that have a lot of symptoms, those are people that I'm suspicious might have some other cause other than these basic patterns of chronic kidney disease. Always remember obstructive uropathy in older men. Lots of times I've seen people refer to me for CKD and they turn out to have an obstructed uh, bladder with their prostate. And again, you know, they, initially they may have a little bit of nocturia, a little urinary frequency. Frequently the tip-off when these patients get into crisis is they start having overflow incontinence. So if one of these men with long-standing prostate symptoms starts to say, well, I leak all the time, uh, that might be a tip-off that you're dealing with significant obstructive uropathy. Um, and frequently, when you lay those people down, you palpate in the, you know, over their bladder, you can feel a mass there. Again, chronic uh, glomerulonephritis is, is a category. Again, these patients tend to have more hematuria, and they frequently, not always, have a systemic disease. They may have lupus or hepatitis C or some rheumatologic disease as a tip-off to a chronic glomerulonephritis. In regards to hematuria, I don't ever pay attention to the urine dipsticks of blood. It's so often inaccurate. I'll see people whose dipsticks, I, and I, when I was testing my hot tub the other day, using my dipstick and hot tub, this thing is really inaccurate. I can't read this very well. <laughs> so I don't think it's very accurate. And so often you'll see people that have dipstick uh, hematuria uh, and they have zero to two RBCs when you look at the microscopic. So the microscopic analysis by the lab is really the key. Uh, a big category of patients we see is pre-renalazotemia, where all of a sudden there's a change in kidney function. So whenever there's been a sudden change in kidney function, again, this is frequently the knee-jerk referral to nephrology. Creatinine has been 1.5, all of a sudden it's 1.9. Um, GFR has been 60, all of a sudden it's 40. Uh, that's a referral to nephrology. But many oftentimes there's some condition going on uh, that is causing a decreased circulation to their kidneys. Um, and patients might have obvious symptoms. They may have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea or not. Um, but sometimes they have obvious symptoms. Uh, very commonly, this is related to medications. I've got a list of meds we typically see that, that can exacerbate uh, pre-renalazotemia. Obviously, diuretics, all the RAS drugs, NSAIDs. And now, of course, these new SGLT2 drugs, they also are mild diuretics. Uh, and they will uh, put you into pre-renal condition. 
Frequently, these patients have comorbid conditions that promote premial azotemic congestive heart failure with decreased uh, uh, cardiac output, uh, pumping blood to the kidneys, uh, cirrhosis, uh, where all the fluid is uh, going to the wrong place, it's going in their periphery and into their ascites. And a big category of patients we see are overweight, obese patients with pulmonary hypertension. Very frequently, this is a repeated scenario uh, with sleep disordered breathing, chronic hypoxia, they get pulmonary hypertension as a result, and they tend to be edematous and fluid does not move around the body appropriately. The circulation of the kidneys reduced, and these patients are at particular risk of uh, pre-renal azotemia. And I'll talk in a minute about uh, how you deal with those patients. There's a special case, with, and this is, we see this a lot in older patients, I kind of call them vasculopaths, people that have a history of significant peripheral vascular disease. Uh, they tend to have stiff systolic hypertension. They may, they may frequently 170 over 70, 160 over 60. Um, and they tend to have a lot of small vessel disease inside the uh, tiny arterioles of the kidney. And their renal circulation is really dependent on an adequate blood pressure. And so scenario I see a lot is they get loaded up with too many blood pressure medicines too fast. Their blood pressure drops from 160 to 120 and their creatinine goes up. I see that a lot. Or for some reason they have a decrease in what I call their, their effective circulating volume. Um, effective circulating volume is a term I use for uh, what circulation of blood tissues or particularly the kidneys are experiencing. And it's easy to see when someone's volume depleted that their circulating volume is low. If they've been vomiting or having diarrhea or too many diuretics, uh, but the effective circulating volume is also low in edematous conditions like pulmonary hypertension, congestive heart failure, and cirrhosis. And these patients, uh, when their blood pressure is low, all of a sudden it's 120, um, their creatinine goes up. Another scenario I've seen is where chronically hypertensive patients are on four drugs for their blood pressure and they lose weight. Especially as people get older, they don't eat as well and their weight starts going down. All of a sudden it's easier to control their blood pressure. Or they get admitted to the hospital with some condition that's lower in their blood pressure and their kidney function changes. So the so often uh, when you have somebody with acute kidney injury on CKD, it's it's superimposed premial leukemia. So what I recommend is when you have a lab all of a sudden sitting on your desk where the kidney function has changed significantly from previous, you know, contact the patient to have your MA or nurse call them. Find out if they had any symptoms. Are they dehydrated? Are they having nausea, vomiting? Are they taking new medications? Is their blood pressure low? Are there some new symptom? And I always think medications is the cause of what's going on. And I. Uh, I really try to encourage all my patients to bring their pill bottles in. I don't trust anything except the pill bottles. Uh, patients' memory is horrible. Many physicians are changing their meds. Uh, keeping an accurate track of meds is frustrating. I think uh, lists, patients say, I've got it on my list or it's in my chart. Well, it may be, it probably is, uh, but I think there's no substitute for having those, uh, uh, those pill bottles in front of you. And I like being a detective. For me, this is the fun part. When you've got a patient who's got a problem, changing kidney, for me, it's kidney function, but it could be anything. Um, I think being a detective is the fun part of being a provider, being a physician. And so I, I encourage you to, to take that on. And once you've identified a potential cause, you know, want to repeat labs, look at their urinalysis again. I always consider a, a possible urinary tract obstruction and feel free to adjust their meds. Just because their cardiologist put them on an ACE inhibitor or an SGLT2 drug doesn't mean it can't be stopped, especially if something else is going on. If the patients have become volume depleted from whatever, you know, feel free to stop those drugs temporarily, get their kidney function back in line, and then you can resume the drugs if that pre-renal stimulus has gone away. And anytime you make a change, let's say you stop the ACE inhibitor, reduce their diuretics, got them off NSAIDs, whatever the particular intervention was, their nausea and vomiting has resolved, uh, get another lab test a week or two or three later to make sure that things have responded as you predicted, as you hoped. And obviously, if it doesn't, if things keep getting worse, that would be obviously a referral to nephrology. 
But remember, it may be a while till we can see those patients. So you're in, still in charge of taking care of them and following the labs until we can see them. So all those things being said, I'm going to move on to uh, what I find the most interesting part, but most people find the eye glazing part. <laughs> this is basic uh, renal physiology, and I boiled this down to the absolute basics because um, some understanding of this really helps uh, assist understanding how these drugs work, the rationale for starting and stopping the medications, and really to help anticipate uh, side effects. So I'm going to have a, a slide or two on um, the following topics, just an assessment of renal function, how we evaluate proteinuria these days. Never, I never do 24-hour urines anymore. Um, some information about uh, the hemodynamics with inside the glomerulus, and understanding that really helps understand how ACE inhibitors and the RAS drugs work. And what is the renal response to low blood pressure or low circulating volume perfusion? And lastly, just a word on proximal tubular function because that's the site of action of these new SGLT2 drugs. Obviously, an assessment of kidney function, an accurate assessment of GFR is uh, critical to the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, and that's based on the serum creatinine. Uh, creatinine, of course, is a molecule, is a protein that it comes about as a result of muscle metabolism. As muscles are metabolized, there's a steady release of creatinine from the muscles. And then creatinine is uh, freely filtered through the glomerulus. Once it's into the renal tubules, it's not significantly uh, secreted or reabsorbed. So the amount of creatinine that comes out in the urine is a direct reflection in many cases of, of the GFR. Um, remember that there are some problems with creatinine. Uh, and, and the problems, again, get back to a couple of things. One, uh, it's the muscle mass issue that I've already touched on. You always have to reference the creatinine to the muscle mass. And the other thing is the creatinine is frequently not the best to evaluate early chronic kidney disease. Uh, here's a uh, slide that I think many people are familiar with. This is sort of the idealized relationship between plasma creatinine on the uh, uh, up axis and GFR on the, uh, I forgot my algebra, x-axis. Um, and the problem with the relationship between GFR and creatinine is, especially at the high end, is a very flat relationship, uh, at least as far as the creatinine goes. So here in this idealized patient, uh, creatinine 1.0 represents a GFR of normal 125. But as GFR starts to fall, the creatinine doesn't change very much. It's a pretty flat portion of that curve down here. Um, so that there can be changes in kidney function that are really not appreciated. And this, again, would especially be the case in someone whose baseline serum creatinine is lower than 1.0. Um, so early changes in kidney function um, are sometimes difficult to appreciate from the uh, creatinine. And of course, we used to do 24-hour creatinine clearances to get around that, but they are so problematic. Patients hate doing them. They're so inaccurate. You know, I just don't do them anymore. Um, and so this has promoted the estimation of GFR, the so-called eGFR that goes on every, every lab test. Just as an aside, um, there's a test called a cystatin C that's coming. And I think this is going to obviate the muscle mass change. Actually, I ordered a cystatin C this week. I hadn't done it before. Uh, but this is a uh, cystatin C is a protein that we all have. It's ubiquitous in our systems. And it's handled uh, just like creatinine by the kidney. I don't think there's any secretion or tubular reabsorption. And it's not affected by muscle mass. So cystatin C may be a very accurate way of measuring GFR. I think this may be the way we do things in the future. I saw a patient this week who was a muscle muscle builder, uh, bodybuilder. He was taking a creatine supplement and his creatinine was 1.4. And I had no idea if he had GFR, had uh, chronic kidney disease or not, because his baseline creatinine is probably higher. Plus he was taking this creatine supplement that uh, gets measured potentially by uh, the creatinine uh, assay in the lab. 
And so cystatin C may be a, a good way of uh, evaluating patients like that. In the future, though, it may be the thing we use standardly for all patients. The EGFR is a formula that was generated by studies in large numbers of patients using what's called the iothalmate clearance. And then they would compare that to the formula that was generated for developing GF or for measuring the EGFR. Iothalmate is a medication that's given intravenously. It's a very accurate way of uh, assessing GFR. And so the formula for EGFR is based on the creatinine plus the age and sex of the patient. The age and sex of the patient are kind of a surrogate for muscle mass. Uh, you know, uh, younger patients are going to have more muscle mass than older patients. Males are going to have more muscle mass than females. This formula tends to be most accurate uh, when the GFR is between 20 and 60. Uh, above and below that, there's a lot of splay in the data so that uh, the calculations tends to start to move away from uh, the iothalmate clearance. Uh, a GFR is less than 20. Uh, frequently, that's overestimating what their two true kidney function is. There tends to be more tubular secretion of creatinine as you get down to the low end. And on the high end, I think there's a lot of splay because the muscle mass is highly variable in patients. Despite those issues, the creatinine and the GFR are still the best way we have right now to follow patients. And although they may be limited in studying you know, populations of patients because of these issues, they're very good at uh, following individual patients. So assuming the patient's muscle mass hasn't changed too much, uh, a comparison of a creatinine from a couple of years ago to now is a, is a valid comparison. Uh, proteinuria is a real marker for the severity of renal injuries. I've mentioned there's a linear correlation between the amount of protein in the urine and the risk of progressive uh, chronic renal injury. Um, and so in patients, I typically, when I see uh, people with CKD, especially diabetics with CKD, in addition to getting a chemistry panel with every visit, we get a, a urine protein creatinine ratio every visit. Uh, we make interventions. We have all these drugs that we're giving patients these days, ACE inhibitors, and it gives us a good way. If they're, even though they're creatinine stable, if their proteinuria is still rising, that might indicate that the therapy that you've given is not doing as good as you think it is. So proteinuria is really where it's at for assessing what's going on uh, in, the, in the renal function. As mentioned, we don't do 24-hour urines anymore. Uh, typically, we order either a microalbumin creatinine ratio or a protein creatinine ratio. The protein creatinine ratio we call a PCR, and that helps you estimate what the 24-hour urine protein would be. If let's say the urine protein is 400 and the urine creatinine is 200, you take 400 divided by 200, that's two, and that would give you an approximate uh, two grams of proteinuria estimated if you actually did a 24-hour collection. So this is a nice, quick, easy, and it's fairly accurate. It's not totally accurate, uh, but the math works out, and it's so much easier than the cumbersome 24-hour urines. So no more 24-hour urines. Forget that message. <laughs> now I'm a bit about glomerular hemodynamics. Here is a picture of a glomerulus, of a nephron unit with uh, the afferent arterial. After all, you know, the blood goes to the kidney, subdivides through smaller and smaller arterials. Uh, you get the afferent arterial, then into the glomerular capillaries, and then the, the blood that leaves the glomerulus goes out through the efferent arterial. The key thing to remember here is the pressure inside the glomerulus. We call that PGC, pressure glomerular capillaries. In pathologic situations, um, PGC is too high. So in these diabetics who are hyperfiltering, uh, whose kidneys are on the decline, uh, the PGC, and so that's the therapeutic effect of the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs is to lower the, uh, and I'll explain how that happens, to lower the PGC. But PGC is directly determined by the systemic blood pressure that's transmitted through the afferent arterial. 
to the glomerular capillaries. And then the, what we call the vasoconstrictive state of the afferent and efferent arterial. Uh, so if the afferent arterial is constricted, less of the systemic pressure gets transmitted into the glomerular capillaries. So with that sort of understanding, um, the, the, it's helpful, this gets a bit complicated, but it's, it's helpful to think about what's going on uh, with the afferent and efferent arterial level of contraction. Um, the afferent arterial is really regulated by prostaglandins, so that's affected by NSAIDs. So the NSAIDs will affect whether you get appropriate dilatation of the afferent arterial. Uh, the, the RAS drugs, which affect angiotensin II, angiotensin II is the prime mediator, mediator of efferent constriction. So as I'll show in a minute, when you have somebody who's hypotensive, for instance, and there's a homeostatic mechanism to maintain GFR, uh, the appropriate response of your kidneys to dilate the afferent arterial to allow that limited falling blood pressure to get transmitted into glomerular capillaries, and then angiotensin II levels increase to squeeze down on the efferent arterial to try to maintain pressure inside the glomerulus and maintain your GFR in the setting of hypoperfusion. So the renal response, uh, as I've got in the last part of the slide, to whether it's volume depletion, low blood pressure, poor cardiac output, um, decreased effective circulating volume, is always dilatation of the afferent arterial and constriction of the efferent arterial. And of course, the medications we give treat chronic kidney disease, impair these homeostatic mechanisms, and that's why patients get acute kidney injury. Obviously, these RAS drugs are really critical to uh, protecting many patients' uh, kidney function and chronic kidney disease. And their effect is, as I mentioned, is to, number one, they lower systemic blood pressure, they decrease uh, the arterial resistance, uh, they decrease pressure inside the glomerulus, and they help prevent hyperfiltration injury. That's the therapeutic response to these drugs. And so we want to keep these drugs going as much as possible. In stable conditions, when patients are feeling good, they're eating well, they're ambulatory, they're doing fine, they can tolerate these drugs for extended periods of time, no problem. But then something else happens. They get volume depleted, they get hypotensive, they get septic. Um, they start taking more diuretics. Uh, at that point, uh, the effective circulating volume changes and the balance is thrown off. And so previously they were tolerating these drugs and now they're not tolerating these drugs. And so frequently, you know, we'll see people in the hospital with severe acute kidney injury who are taking these drugs and they're always stopped, of course, and kidney function frequently promptly resolves. Uh, it's always a question is when to, should you resume them or you should not resume them? Uh, and that's truly a judgment call. And I think uh, the way I look at it typically is if it appears that the pre-renal condition that stimulated uh, their sensitivity is going to go away, uh, their vomiting has stopped, their influenza has stopped, uh, their excessive use of diuretics has stopped, then I think it's safe to put them back on these drugs with close follow-up. But sometimes if you have a diabetic patient with gastroparesis who's throwing up all the time, it's probably just not safe to keep, the, keep people on those drugs. It's, it's always a judgment. Uh, another physiology picture from our distant memory. Um, this is a glomerulus that's sliced open. You can see the glomerular capillaries. And then this is the afferent arterial bringing blood into the glomerulus and the efferent arterial bringing blood away from the glomerular capillaries. This whole area here is called the JG, juxtaglomerular apparatus. And in close position, 
struggling here, in close position to these cells that lie in the efferent, arter and, efferent, efferent and afferent arterial is the distal convoluted tubule. It runs right by each individual nephron unit. The distal convoluted tubule bends back and runs right back to the efferent arter and afferent arterial. So what the kidney is always measuring, these cells are measuring, first of all, pressure with inside the arterioles. And if pressure drops, uh, that causes these specialized cells to release renin. As well, remember from our renin angiotensin axis, that stimulates angiotensin and then stimulates aldosterone. So a fall in pressure causes uh, increase in renin. And then on the tubular side, that's on the distal convoluted tubular that goes right by, those specialized cells here are in direct, they're part of the juxtacomerial apparatus. They're constantly measuring the amount of sodium delivery uh, to that part of the nephron. So again, as someone who's got low circulating volume, they're vomiting, their uh, effective circulating volume is low, pressure is low, Renin is stimulated through the JG receptors in the afferent arterial. There's less sodium delivered to the distal tubule because it's all being absorbed at the proximal tubule. And when the uh, macula densa, that's this portion of the distal convoluted tubule, when it sees that low sodium delivery, it also starts to put out renin. And renin produces angiotensin II, causes the afferent arterial to constrict. These things all go together. Um, and of course, the, the macula densa is also the source of these prostaglandins that vasodilate the afferent arterial. Again, these are all homeostatic mechanisms. Um, just to reiterate, uh, pressure is sensed by the JG cells. When pressure is low, that releases renin. Uh, when sodium delivery of the macula densa is reduced, that also releases renin and the vasodilatory prostaglandins. This is all homeostatic mechanism to protect uh, the GFR. So you can see the patients you're really worried about these drugs. Anytime that effective circulating volume is low, uh, whether it's mild conditions in an outpatient or a severe condition when patients are admitted to the hospital, uh, their renal function is very sensitive to these medications. I, I call the triple threat, the RAS drugs plus NSAIDs plus diuretics. And now I've added a fourth category to my triple threat, and these are the SGLT2 drugs. These drugs, if anybody's ever admitted to the hospital with acute renal failure, I think should always be stopped. But it, it, they need, as an outpatient setting, frequent monitoring to make sure kidney function is stable. Next is down to the renal tubule. Um, I'm going to move quickly here. This is the site of action of these new empagliflozin drugs. Uh, these drugs block. Here's a schematic of a proximal tubular cell. And on the uh, urine side of this tubular cell, there is a transporter, the SGLT2 transporter, uh, that co-transports both sodium and glucose from the tubule lumen into the proximal tubular cell. And that's directly blocked by the glyphosin drugs. So the glyphosin drugs block this transporter, and as a result, more salt and urine, more salt and sugar stay in the urine and move down the course of the nephron. And this leads to the typical side effects. Because you're losing more salt, they're a bit of a diuretic. They're beneficial in treating edema and congestive heart failure. Uh, and they're also medications that are diabetic medications because they cause you to urinate more glucose than you otherwise would. And this predicts the side effect. You have more sugar in the urine, there's more yeast infections, there's more perineal infections, there's fornase gangrene, of course, would be the ultimate uh, bad thing, and more urinary tract infections in general on these medications. But they've been shown to be very beneficial at protecting your kidney. I'm getting to the end here. This is a um, complicated slide, but this is really where we're headed. And I, I didn't really want to focus on this too much, but this is where we are headed in the treatment of chronic kidney disease. And these are the so-called four pillars uh, 
uh, and it's really exciting. Uh, we've finally got a whole new set of therapeutic uh, regimens to treat high-risk chronic kidney disease, especially uh, high-risk diabetic nephropathy. There's been a tremendous amount of research in the last 20, 25 years looking at all these uh, pathologic mechanisms of how diabetes and target organ damage are associated. And we're starting to see the fruits of all this research where there's therapeutic agents that now uh, affect these different mechanisms. And of course, pillar one is something we're all familiar with. These are the RAS drugs, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, uh, that decrease blood pressure, decrease efferent arterial tone, and help protect kidneys from hyperfiltration. The next pillar is the SGLT2 drugs that I mentioned. Um, and by causing more salt to be delivered to the macula densa, they actually increase afferent tone. And of course, that allows less of the systemic blood pressure to be transmitted in the glomerulus, and that helps protect them from hyperfiltration injury. Um, these drugs are also, I think, increasingly part of the treatment of patients with congestive heart failure. And many of the studies have shown that not only are they good for protecting kidneys, but they help reduce emissions for congestive heart failure. I think the cardiologists are starting to make this a frequent standard part of the therapy they're giving for their CHF uh, patients. Unfortunately, they're expensive. Um, although I just did hear that uh, the previously named Farsiga may be going generic. And then always remember VA patients have full coverage for all these medications. The next category is phenarinone, which is the updated version of spironolactone. Um, uh, but as many people in the field are saying, this is no longer your father's spironolactone. This is a different drug. It's a much more specific drug uh, blocking the aldosterone receptor. I was a real skeptic on this drug because I thought it was just the drug company trying to get us to prescribe more uh, expensive medications. But this is different than spironolactone. It does, it does not produce the same hyperkalemia and um, does not cross the blood-brain barrier. doesn't cause gynecomastia. It's a much more tolerated drug. The fourth pillar are the uh, GLP drugs. Ozempic and Trulicity. And there was just a study that had to be stopped for efficacy. It was a study looking at um, kidney and heart failure markers with these drugs. And all the buzz in the renal community is that it was very beneficial. The study has not yet been published, but it was stopped early for efficacy. The um, treatment arm was doing much better than the control group. So on a uh, passionate basis, they had to stop the study at that point. So that's going to be published in the coming months. So it looks like uh, you know this class of drugs is not only going to be good for patients who are overweight and controlling diabetes, it's also going to be good for protecting heart and kidneys. Um, interestingly, these GLP drugs seem to decrease uh, ischemic cardiac endpoints, and uh, whereas the SGLT2 drugs are better for congestive heart failure endpoints. So I, I think it may be the rare patient that gets on all four of these drugs at the same time, although many people in this field are suggesting that we get all four of these drugs on board, particularly for high-risk patients. The cost and the side effects, I think that's going to be pretty difficult to, to really achieve that, but that's where we're headed. But I think we may be more targeting. You may use the SGLT drugs for patients who have trouble with volume. You may use the uh, GLP drugs for patients who have trouble with weight and ischemic cardiac endpoints. But it's definitely an exciting uh, change. In my 30 years of practice, all we've had is lisinopril. And now I've got a lot more stuff to, to do to try to help our high-risk patients. This is just a study I'm looking at phenarinone. I'm going to go through this pretty quick. There's obviously a splay over time looking at uh, renal endpoints when you compared phenarinone with placebo. This is a 48-month uh, study looking at renal endpoints. Um, this is a slide I found real interesting. Uh, and this is they're trying to get, get us to push the RAS drugs to the maximum. 
um, you can see they're comparing uh, maximum dose of a RAS drug to the submaximum dose to people that discontinue the drug altogether. And you can see in all these different instances, uh, they're looking at mortality on the y-axis. Then in stage four uh, CKD, that the mortality is significantly lower in people who use the maximum dose. Uh, heart failure, less mortality in the maximum dose. Diabetes in all patients all had significant better outcomes in patients where the RAS drugs were pushed to the maximum. And we look at the submaximal dose, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between people who stopped the drug and people who were taking a submaximal dose. So what is a maximum dose? Well, it's the maximum dose that doesn't cause hyperkalemia, doesn't change kidney function by more than 30%, and doesn't drop blood pressure to unacceptable levels. Uh, obviously, it's a lot of follow-up, seeing patients back, checking their meds, checking their labs. This is the 30% uh, slide. And we keep these therapies going. If the GFR has not gone down by less than 30%, and frequently when you start these drugs, I saw several people this week who I started the drugs, their creatinine went up to from 1.2 to 1.5. I was a little worried, held held uh, the course. We checked a couple weeks later, it was back down to 1.2. So frequently there's a little adaption going on inside the kidneys that allows uh, patients to tolerate these drugs. Uh, lastly, just a bit about oh, ambulatory hyperkalemia. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's kind of the, the bottom line. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about hyperkalemia in the hospital. People who are shocked, no urine output, acid, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But when you get labs, uh, maybe they're labs for your upcoming appointment, or maybe they're labs uh, after you made an intervention and the potassium's high. Um, I always think of meds. Uh, I've got some general guidelines here. If the potassium is greater than or equal to six, probably need to intervene the same day just to do some sort of evaluation, stop their meds, contact the patient, uh, make sure they're not volume depleted. If, if the potassium is particularly high or particularly fragile patient, perhaps they do need to go to the emergency room, but most of these people can be treated outpatient by altering their medications, getting them on a low potassium diet. And of course, sometimes we use the potassium containing uh, resins, Kexlate is the old fashioned one. Now there's the updated uh, potassium agents. I've always been reluctant to put patients on one med to deal with the side effects of another med, especially the cost and the side effects. But sometimes we'll use uh, these potassium, the newer potassium uh, lowering resins, you know, once or twice a week, just to allow them to continue their RAS drug or their phenarinone or any other drugs that may cause hyperkalemia. Just a couple caveats. Uh, we always work harder to maintain these meds in people with proteinuria. So if you have a proteinuria patient who's hypertensive, really want to keep them on their RAS drug if possible. For patients who aren't proteinuric and they get significant hyperkalemia, you know, then I might say, let's, let's just treat their uh, blood pressure with calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, diuretics, and just give up on the RAS drug in people that don't have proteinuria. Um, I always have written handouts for patients so that they can see which high potassium foods to avoid and some potassium uh, alternatives. Uh, for instance, oranges, um, bananas, lots of potassium, apples, pears, less potassium, as, as an example. Consider restarting the drugs after you made an intervention. I always repeat the lab. So the final slide, just on putting it all together. Um, you know, I'd like the primary care physicians to take a little bit more ownership of these patients, uh, recognize the abnormal kidney function, always find old labs, look at trends, talk to the patients about chronic kidney disease a little bit so they have some understanding of what's going on, emphasize lifestyle changes, uh, make a specific diagnosis, uh, get the routine labs that I mentioned, and see patients back routinely because you can't do all this at once. You can't educate, change meds, check labs, work on lifestyle and all in one visit. It has to be done uh, sequentially. I'm gonna stop there. These are, we have no grandkids yet, but these are my, my current grandchildren.
So I appreciate your Thanks, attention. Uh, Dr. Rinell, I have questions here, if that's okay. Sure. Um, ask uh, one of my colleagues was, say we have a diabetic patient, uh, has some microalbuminuria, we have them on a RAS drug, we're following their microalbumin or protein. Is there a point at which we should institute the SGLT2 drug or refer what level of uh, yes, I think protein in the air? If it's rising or if it isn't rising, if, the, if you felt the patient's high risk, the studies are out there showing significant benefits of these drugs. Uh, I typically remember they're diuretic. And if their creatinine goes up too much when they're on the RAS and the SGLT2, I'm freaking the doctor off and stop their diuretics. Um, that's the thing with the art of medicine. You may sometimes need to do that. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways. And of course, really emphasize the need for low sodium diet. To get people on low salt diet, they don't need as many diuretics. And you can get away with that. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, but the um, acute kin kidney injury when somebody's on a RAS drug, often we'll see patients, they come out of the hospital, that drug was stopped. Correct. And like you said, well, we think probably we can start it again. Do we go back and start at the lowest dose and start titrating up again? Uh, again, a judgment call which dose. If the event that put them in the hospital is self-limited and gone and done, and you feel the patient's high risk, got to start the drugs back again. And I probably would start them back on their previous dose with close follow-up. Uh, if you thought their blood pressure was too low before they went into the hospital, then maybe you want to back off from the dose. Um, one caveat that I'm learning is that low sartan is the weakest of the ARBs, mm -hmm. and the other uh, ARBs are more potent. So just keep that in mind too. Um, also a question, we have uh, a relatively young patient, and you might have touched on this too, who's, who has a, uh, creatinine, say 1.4, 1.5, they're otherwise healthy. Um, that be, uh, Reason for they, yeah. Well, I can understand when you're dealing with a younger patient, you know, our our need to not make a mistake, I think is higher. Uh, so I, I think we're more welcoming of younger patients with stable chronic kidney disease, absolutely. Um, and I'm not trying to stiff arm all these patients. We, we, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed on every, we get, Plenty of referrals a day to our office. It's pretty incredible. Um, sometimes I, I've got this list of long referrals. It takes me forever to go through them all. Um, so definitely more welcome of a younger patient because you just don't want to make a mistake. The the 92 year old with the creatinine 1.6. That's what we're trying to get away from because we see a lot of that. So. And any other questions come into the chat? All right. Those were good. Those were good questions. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks very much. All right. Good deal. Yeah.